Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, April the 5th, 2022. It is currently 5.43 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. Now, before I can say anything else, before I can even hope to introduce the topic for this afternoon, let me just offer a warning. We are going to be talking about subjects that are of an adult nature. It This may not be suitable for people of a younger age. You may not want them to hear this in any way, shape, or form. Let me just tell you this, though. Everything we're talking about is going to come from the Bible. It, it's in the Bible, but it is of a mature theme and of, of a mature nature. So I want you to have every opportunity right now to just say, nope, close that. I'll listen to it later. Put on headphones. Have the kids go somewhere else. Wherever you are, just want you to know that this will be a, a discussion about a very important subject, one that obviously has mature themes, but we need to have a very blunt and frank discussion about it because I think in many cases, no one wants to discuss these issues or they are clearly overlooked. All right. I'll give you just a couple of seconds. I'll give you, I give you maybe, maybe I'll try to give you up to maybe 30 seconds here so that you can take whatever precautions you need to take. Because again, the goal here is not to just be scandalous or controversial or shocking. That's not the goal. The goal is like, we've got to talk about these things because they're right here in the Bible. But I think what the way we typically handle these passages of scripture is we just kind of overlook the possible shocking content and just focus on something else. And as a result, I think it's, it's really hurt the church in many cases to talk about a very important subject. All right. So are you ready? Okay, here we go. All right, I mean, I've given you every warning. I've done everything I can. So let's proceed. Here we go. The I see. I'll give you the date. Let me give you the exact date here. Let me let me pull this up. I'll give you the exact date. It was April the first, twenty twenty two. April the first, twenty twenty two. We did a fifty nine minute live broadcast where we talked about sexual violence in the Bible, and that was part one. Sexual violence in the Bible, part one. I have decided to look at passages in the Scripture that seem to contain examples or stories of sexual violence. And I wanted us to really focus in on the sexual violence. Now, clearly, um, based off some of the emails I have received uh, and comments that people have made, I think in some in some cases, people missed the point. Like the first passage we looked at was in the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis, and it was in uh, Genesis chapter nine. We looked at uh, Genesis chapter nine, verses 20 to 29, Genesis chapter nine, verses 20 through 29, where Noah he gets drunk, he removes all of his clothing, um, and then, well, something really bad happens, and then uh, Canaan is, well, cursed, and then we, we we talked about all of that, what possibly occurred, and that, it, that a lot of people feel and believe that something of a sexual nature happened, that Noah was violated sexually. That, that That's how a lot of people understood this. We looked at this from a Jewish perspective, we looked at it from other perspectives, and the text seems to indicate something happened. 
Now, I wanted to focus on the possibility of sexual violence. And then I wanted to look at it and say, okay, if sexual violence happened here, how should we understand this text? What lessons can we learn from it? And then almost immediately, I received comments about focused on focused on everything else, okay, uh, on this. And, th- and I'm like, no, 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 the, the whole, that's why it's called sexual violence and the Bible, right? Sexual violence and the Bible. That's what I wanted to focus on, but everyone wanted really to, I guess some people wanted me to do a, like a in-depth study of that section of scripture focused on everything else. Now, the goal of this series is to focus on passages that, that seem to contain examples of sexual violence and actually focus on the sexual violence. See, I, this is what I think is too common is people look at these passages and immediately like, okay, maybe there was sexual violence, but what about this? What about that? What about this? What? And I'm like, no, 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 no. The problem is we never want to talk about the sexual violence. That's what we need to talk about. There's been lots of discussions in the culture about sexual harassment, sexual abuse, sexual violence. And in many cases, you could almost argue that it's those outside of the church that's leading that focus and that discussion. And the church is kind of still way behind because it makes us too uncomfortable to discuss it. Now, I understand church is a very, a church service is definitely an a, a difficult place to have some of these very frank and blunt conversations about sexual violence and sexual assault and sexual abuse. I understand that can be a, a difficult place to have that conversation because it's it's a church service. You have you have people walking in, visitors. There may be younger children. You know, it's just a how do we approach it? But at the same time, we have passages in the Bible that f- seem to be talking about sexual violence, or at least demonstrating it. So what some pastors do is they may kind of allude to it. Well, obviously something else happened here. Obviously something else happened here that was really bad, but then they'll immediately make the focus on something like they'll just kind of, kind of just acknowledge that there may be something here, but then turn the spiritual, the entire lesson focusing on something other than the spirit, the sexual violence. And, and then we can never really have a meaningful, frank discussion about it. And there are lots of people who have suffered sexual violence, either as a child or uh, later in life. They've been uh, sexual harassed, abused, raped, molested. And the church, I, I think we have to have some serious conversations about it and try to understand what some of these passages may, what they may teach us in regards to that subject and not change the subject. All right, so we've looked at Genesis chapter nine. Again, I got lots of emails, lots of comments. Most none of them had anything to do with sexual violence. All right, I don't think I don't think I received one. I think maybe maybe one, maybe two of of someone actually wanting to talk about the p- potential of sexual violence. There, I think most it. I, I was just kind of like, that's not really what that was about. And so, I, what we're going to do here is we're going to still be in Genesis. We're going to talk, and once again, we're going to look at a passage, and the focus is, I just, I have to repeat myself. Sometimes people email me, you repeat yourself too much. I'm like, look at the emails I'll get. Clearly, I don't repeat myself too much, all right? <laughs> Clearly, I need to repeat myself more. But um, the focus here is, again, on is sexual violence spoken of here in this text of Scripture? Now, we looked at Genesis 9. There's lots of different opinions there. Something clearly happens. 
Something clearly happens, all right? Genesis 16 is where we are today. Genesis 16, and I found this interesting. So I've looked at Genesis 16, and uh, someone who uh, is a listener, they, they, they're, they're kind of making a list of all the passages in the Bible that may contain examples of sexual violence, right? May deal with the subject of sexual violence. So they, they sent me their list, and so I'm just kind of following their list, looking at the passages they found. Um, and I appreciate them working on this because I wanted everyone involved in doing this because I think it's such an important subject. And they, they wrote down Genesis 16. Now, as soon as I looked at it, I'm like, okay. I think there's something going on here that needs to be talked about. But then I just started looking like, okay, let's start searching. And I kind of found an interesting thing. If a church was, say, if 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 it was a website that was very, maybe conservative, theologically, maybe very Bible-based, theological, they in many cases did not approach this text as having anything to do with sexual violence. But if the website seemed to be focused on maybe a more liberal approach, maybe even from a secular uh, approach uh, that would be what we would be labeled as a feminist, women's rights, that kind of, uh, of, of perspective. They had a tendency to look at this, perspe- this text as speaking of sexual violence. Now, immediately that bothered me. I'm like, so wait a minute, we have a text of scripture and clearly what influences how we look at this scripture seems to be whether we're conservative or liberal. And I don't like that feeling. Like, no, no, we should look at the text and it doesn't matter if you're liberal or conservative. What's in it is what's in it. And then we have to deal with it. Now, I can understand if someone takes a liberal approach and they don't believe in the inspiration or the infallibility of the Bible for them to say, well, I don't follow it. I don't believe it. I don't think it's true. Okay, obvious, but we should all be able to figure out what a text says, irregardless of our political leanings, whether conservative or liberal, even theologically conservative or liberal. We should be able to figure out what the text says, right? We should be able to figure that out, but it appears that that is not the case. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Genesis 16. I'm going to just throw out some thoughts, and then I have an article that I think well, I think is a very interesting approach to it. We may read some commentaries and again, once again, try to get us talking about this very important subject of sexual violence in the Bible. You ready? Genesis chapter 16, verse one. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, bear him no children. And she had an handmaid, an Egyptian whose name was Hagar. Now, most likely they obtained Hagar when they were in Egypt. I think it's about 10 years earlier. I'm I'm guessing on the time frame. But when they were in Egypt before, they obtained Hagar. So she is basically not a handmaid. Think she's a slave. Let's just call it what it is. She's a slave. She's a servant. So uh, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. And she had an handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. Uh, I pray, or let me read this again. And now Sarah said unto Abram, Behold, now the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now, a lot of things we could get into. One, Sarai seems to understand the reason she can't have a child is because God has restrained her. 
God has been the one who put the restraint there. But in spite of that restraint, she's like, okay, God is restraining me from having a child. There's our, there's our servant. There's Hagar. There's the slave. Go in unto her, and the exact words are written like this. Go in unto my maid. It may be that I may obtain children by her. And Abram hearkened unto the voice of Sarai. There, there's the handmaid. There's the slave. Go in unto her. Have physical relations with her, and maybe she'll produce a child, and that child will be mine. I mean, she she's viewing it as Hagar is simply viewed here as I, I mean, there's no other nice way to put this. She's just viewed there as a tool, as something to be used. She's simply there as a means to an end. She's not viewed even really as a person. She's just viewed as a means to an end. Look, I can't have a child. Maybe she can. Go be with her, and then I'll have a child. That, that, that dehumanizes the way Hagar is viewed here horribly. It treats her not as a human being, not as someone who has any ability to give consent, any, any, any control of her life. She's, she's got to do what she said. Now, this is very important. What a lot of people will immediately come back and say, but, 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 but you have to understand the times. You have to understand the culture. I don't know why Christians run to that defense for some passages in the Bible. Some passages in the Bible describe something horrible, and it's almost like, well, like, but, 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 wait, 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 wait. You know, we can't, we can't make these people sound horrible. We can't make these people sound bad. I mean, we've got to, we got to make sure we give an, an, an explanation. And the explanation is, well, you just got to understand the culture. I don't know why we would run to that as any, as an excuse, as a defense. I don't know why we would do that. Because isn't the whole argument of Christianity is that we are not to follow the culture? We are to be different than the culture? So it doesn't matter what the culture was doing. It doesn't matter what everyone around them was doing. Based off what God, what they hopefully would understand about God being the creator and people created in the image of God, do you think this is a right approach? Do you think this is a biblical approach based on what we would hope they would understand about God and about people here in Genesis 16. I don't think it's biblical. I think it's clearly based off the culture at the time. Clearly, slavery is being practiced. They have this person, and this person now is treated not as a human being who has any control over their own destiny. No, you go in under her. Hagar is not even... Her, her desire, her will is completely ignored here. Like it doesn't even, Hagar is not even viewed as someone who has any choice in the matter. You go to her and Hagar, and Abram hearkens unto her. And it sounds like possibly, again, I would have to check the math. I think they, Hagar's probably been with the family for about 10 years. About 10 years from the time they came out of Egypt. I think it's been about 10 years. And he, he goes in unto her. Now, here's a, a question, and, and this is very important. Is verse 3, all right, I, and, and I think this is very important, and, and, and I'll, I'm, I'm going to ask it more as a question because I just want you to think about these passages of Scripture. So, so the first thing we can clearly see is that Hagar is not being treated here as a person who has a choice. She's treated as a means to an end. She's treated as an object to be used. She's simply the tool, the tool to give them what they want, a child. 
Now you can say, well, but they, she's trying to fulfill God's promise. Maybe she, maybe you can argue that her motives are right, but she's still taking another human being and using that other human being simply as a tool to accomplish supposedly, let's say, a spiritual desire. Let's even say the desire is spiritual. I mean, you could argue that within that culture, a woman who can't have a child would be clearly looked down upon. So it could have been maybe her motives were not as pure as we may think they are. Maybe they were. There's a lot of speculation here, but there is no speculation that Hagar doesn't get much. There's no choice here for her in this. Now, this is very important. Verse two has Sarah saying, here's go in unto my maid. And at the end of verse two, Abram hearken unto the voice. Now, do we understand verse two is simply a summary statement? Here's what happened. Then verse three do we understand this to be kind of the chronology of it? Let me explain. Verse 3. And Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram, had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. All right, so so there's where the 10 years, I think, comes from. I, I think it's exactly 10 years from when they come out of Egypt. I'm trying to figure out when they, where they would have possibly uh, picked her up, all right, but or, or received her because she was given to them, but okay. Um, And dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Now, here's the question. Did he sleep with her, have physical relations with her first, then Sarai gave him to, then Sarai gave to him Hagar to be his wife? Now, some commentaries refer to Hagar as a concubine, not as a wife. Some refer to her as a wife. There's, there's some, some issue, and, and not only that, what is, do we, what's the chronology here? Hey, look, go, go have relations with her. He has relations with, relationships with, relationship with her. He, he has physical, and you know, he's intimate with her. I'm trying to, to be as, as nice as I can be here. He, he has physical relations. And then after the physical relations, he, she's like, okay, here, here you go. Marry her. Make her your wife. Or is it that he, she makes Hagar his wife, then after, the wife, after he is married to her, then they have relations. Now, some people may say it doesn't matter. I'm just asking, how do you read Do you think the chronology matters? Does the physical relationship happen first, then the, the marriage, or does the marriage happen first, then the, rela- then the physical intimacy? Doesn't matter. Some will say it does. Some will say it doesn't. You can, you can draw your own conclusions. I'm not going to get so caught up in this episode trying to figure that out because here's the thing. Number one, he takes her, let's say he takes her to be his wife. She's going to be viewed as a secondary wife. And there's some commentaries that, that speak of this kind of practice at the time. Um, here's, here's one commentary that kind of explains this. Sarai gave her to Abram to be his wife. Wife is here used to describe an inferior, though not degrading, relation in countries where polygamy prevails. In the case of these female slaves, who are the personal property of his lady, being purchased before her marriage or given as a special present to her, no one can become the husband's secondary wife without her mistress's consent or permission. 
This usage seems to have prevailed in patriarchal times, and Hagar, Sarai's slave, of whom she had the entire right of disposing, was given by her mistress spontaneous offer to be the secondary wife of Abram and the hope of obtaining the long-looked-for heir. It was a wrong step, indicating a want of simple reliance on God, and Sarah was the first to reap the bitter fruits of her device. Another commentary says, his concubine or secondary wife. All right, so concubine, secondary wife, did they have relations first? Then did the supposed marriage take place? Here's a couple of things to consider. Number one, even if we say that, well, because I, I, I've seen comments under articles about this. Well, I don't see a problem with the passage. Sarai gave him uh, her to be his wife. He married her. Polygamy was accepted at the time. So it's not that it was necessarily wrong. So nothing wrong happened here. Nothing really wrong happened here. And I, 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 other than they didn't trust God. So, so this is just a, a lack of trusting God. Okay, a couple of things. I think we would have to acknowledge that polygamy clearly was wrong based off God's original design. It was, it was clearly wrong. I, I just don't see that there's any way to get around that. It was wrong. You, the two will become one flesh, one man, one woman for life. That seems to be the biblical model. So polygamy was already a violation of that. Now, you could argue, and this is always difficult in, in interpreting Genesis. People go back and forth on this. Let me, let me explain. Some people interpret Genesis and say, hey, look, you can't condemn any of their actions based off the law that will be given later. So in other words, when we get to the Exodus and we get to the New Testaments and we get to all of these moral laws, we can't take those moral laws and come back and apply them to the people in Genesis because that law had not been given yet. We can't condemn it. But then people will, so on one hand, people will say, you can't condemn these people. But then on the other hand, they'll turn around and then make an excuse, right? For example, um, so, so on one hand, they'll say, you cannot condemn, condemn anyone. So no one is applied. Then they'll turn around and, and then someone will do something in Genesis and they'll say, well, see, that was wrong. That was sinful. That was ungodly. Okay, well, well so, so was it sinful? Was it ungodly? How do we judge what these people do? Do we do so based off the law given later? Or do we not judge them based off that law? It, it goes back and forth. Sometimes we'll say, well, you know what? At, there was Adam and Eve. They would have had children. Those children would have had to marry one another. That's the only way you would have been able to produce children. So clearly incest would have been acceptable at the time because it wasn't condemned till later. That's how people will say so. Then they'll go just a couple of chapters later and say, but see what that person did right there? That was sinful. What? Well, sinful based off what? Well, and then they'll quote something from the New Testament or something from Exodus or something later on. Well, so how do we, do we judge these people? How do we judge these people? I will argue that we can say clearly polygamy was not the plan that was, seems to be established starting in the early parts of Genesis. Polygamy was not the plan. It was one man, one woman. That seems to be what was established early on. And then, uh, then it, it's, it's that, well, and polygamy becomes the dominant practice. Once again, most likely demonstrating that even the people of God were influenced by the culture in which they lived. This is the constant truth of Christianity, the constant truth of the people of God. They are all constantly influenced by the culture in which they live. This is what we always have to fight against. So polygamy clearly is wrong. 
Second, this is very important. And I, I, think, I don't think there's any way to get around this. So polygamy is wrong no matter what we say. At the very least, he's guilty of polygamy. At the very least, he's guilty of polygamy. And if polygamy is wrong, then therefore Abram is guilty of adultery because they, polygamous marriage is not a legitimate marriage. So he's committing adultery. Even if it's with the wife's consent, it wouldn't be with God's consent because you're not to have relations with someone other than your spouse. So he would at least be at, at minimum guilty of adultery. Now, what we, have a t- what we have a tendency to do in these passages, again, is everyone just would say, see, this just demonstrates a lack of trust in God and a lack of faith. And so the, the application is always, hey, remember, when you're facing these choices, these situations, trust God and follow his word. Don't trust in your own plans. And, and that's usually about as much as we get into this. But this would demonstrate that, that Abram was guilty of polygamy and adultery. And that, that, that changes people's view of Abram a little bit, right? He, he's, he, he, he does some really messed up stuff here. But here's the third possible. So there's two. There, there's no question. Polygamy and adultery has to be seen here. Clearly. I don't think there's any way to get around that. But the third question is this, or the third possible sin, I, I think we could say, is this. So clearly he's guilty of polygamy. Clearly, he's guilty of adultery. But was Abram guilty of rape? Was Abram guilty of rape? Now, nobody wants to talk about that. Again, this is constantly over. Nobody wants to see sexual violence in this passage. They just want to see, here's these really godly people who just in a moment of weakness stop trusting in God, and we can all do that. Almost like they just made a mistake, and we're, nobody's perfect, and when everybody just moves on. But man, if we add sexual violence to this, it really changes everything. Now, we know this. Hagar can't give any, any meaningful consent. I mean, any, you can say, well, she could have given consent. I guess technically she could have, but I, I mean, she's a slave. Look, there's nothing in this text that even resembles anything that looks like Hagar was like, yeah, I love this idea. Now, maybe she did, but there's, a, there's a, at least a high probability that she, w- she did not give any consent. This was just imposed upon her and she was sexually used for the benefit of Abram and Sarai. She was used by both of them. Sarai's like, here you go, use her. And Abram's like, no problem. Not, not, a, not a good situation in any way, shape, or form. Let, let me let you hear, or I'll, I'll read to you, how... One article describes this. In Genesis 16, Abram and Sarah, or or Abraham and Sarah, the way they have it written would be Abram and Sarai, sinned. I've always been taught that their sin was failing to trust that God would follow through on the promise of future children and taking matters into their own hands by getting Hagar to bear a child for them. Nobody's perfect. Am I right? And, And that's a lot of times how it's taught. Like the sexual violence part just kind of gets overlooked or even the possibility of it. Now, some will mention it, but the focus still on the sermon will be, 
Are you trusting God when things don't seem to be working out? When everything seems to be going wrong, do you trust God or you come up with your own plans and your own ideas? And then we'll think of some, they'll give you like three or four different ways which we possibly do this. And then, but the whole sexual violence kind of gets just pushed to the side. Let's see what they do with this. I quote, but when I look at this story again, it's evident that the sin is most truly against Hagar. Abraham, or Abram, rapes her, an enslaved woman with no choice or control over her own body, and forces her to bear him the son he, he, he believes he has coming to him. It doesn't matter if this was an accepted practice in the culture around him. Rape isn't something that becomes less wrong from one place in time to another. Now, let's stop right here. Another very important distinction here. And again, Christians should know this. We're the ones who hate when the, when the culture says, well, times change. What was sinful in the past isn't sinful now because culture changes. Culture evolves. Christians are always like, no, if it was sin, it will always be sin. If it's wrong, it's always wrong. Well, that is true even when we read the Bible of God's people doing things like polygamy or possible rape, it doesn't matter what the culture says. It doesn't matter if the culture says, yeah, you can use her any way you want. Is that the way God's people should have viewed her? Should they have at least viewed her not as a slave, but as a person created in the image of God? What the culture was doing is not justification or an excuse. And I, and I believe we cannot use it that way. All right. Um, it goes, in a way, the two sins are related. If Abram had trusted God, then he wouldn't have sexually victimized an innocent woman for his own gain. Ultimately, God doesn't allow him to benefit from his sin, instead making him to wait many more years for Isaac to arrive. God's promise to Abraham will not be carried out through rape and sexual slavery. Every time Abram raped Hagar, God saw. Every time Sarah, Sarai mistreated Hagar out of jealousy, forcing her to do manual labor and beating her, and even according to some rabbinical t interpretations, causing her to miscarry her first child before eventually becoming pregnant with Ishmael, God saw that too. Now, that's such a rabbinical tradition that Hagar miscarried her first child. That's only because of her mistreatment. That's only a, a tradition. I'm not saying that that's biblical. It's also, they, they understand that probably Hagar would have been raped multiple times, probably not just once. I'm not going to go that far. I'm not going to go that far. I'm just going to say clearly it happened once. Clearly she could not, she has no power here. She has no control here. So, it clearly starts meeting the definition of rape because it's a, a sexual intercourse without consent. Clearly something is, is wrong. Now you may argue, well, there was consent. I, I, the text does not seem to indicate this. And then look at what happens so, so that we can just see this because it's very important. So Sarah's Abram wife took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian. After Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land, and he gave her to her, to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. 
And he went in unto Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her uh, her mistress was despised in her eyes. Now, I will I will argue that possibly the text seems to imply that maybe just one physical encounter and she gets pregnant. Now, the fact that he becomes his wife, that she becomes his wife, probably would indicate that then it would have physical relations would have continued. There's a high probability of that. So then he would have been committing adultery and polygamy. And if Hagar gave no consent or had no ability to give consent, then it's clearly a form of rape because she cannot give consent. But then after all of this happens, the, it, the, the one who's been used, the one who's been the victim now is abused by, well, Sarai, because now she is despised. In verse five, and Sarai said unto Abram, my wrong be upon thee. I've given my maid unto thy bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and thee. So clearly now there's problems. Sarai comes up with a plan. Now she's being despised by the slave. And the slave is probably thinking, well, you know, now I should be the primary wife and you should be the secondary wife because I, I produced a child. So now there's, there's tension here. Now you could argue that maybe does this, because Hagar despises Sarai? Now, how could we interpret this? Does Hagar despise Sarai because of what? What is happening to her? She's being used? Or is she despising Sarai because she's like, look, I produced a child. I should be the primary wife. You should be secondary. Is it, what, what's the cause of this being dis, despising her? That, that could possibly say a lot about how, what has happened. Abram said unto Sarai, behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleaseth thee. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, she fled from her face. Abram doesn't even do the basic decent thing that a husband should do and go, wait a minute, both of you are my wife. We have to find a way to make this work. No, 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 no. He doesn't even do that. He doesn't even show any love or compassion for Hagar. Hagar is viewed very much in this passage. She's just the object to be used. She's been used. A child has been produced. I don't care what you do with her. Now you can do whatever you want with her. I mean, again, this is, this is Abraham, Father Abraham, the the man mentioned in, in Hebrews 11. He's one of the heroes of the faith. And when we see, when the curtain is pulled back, we see some messed up ungodly things going on here. Just do whatever you want. And then Sarah basically treats her horribly. And, she, and Hagar flees, runs, has to run away. She's not only has she been abused and used and possibly raped, she's, she now has to flee. You talk about just a horrible situation. Verse seven, and the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, uh, and he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, whence comest thou and whither Will thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarai. She's fleeing. So you can clearly, we could probably imply that whatever Sarai did to her was was not a good thing. It was so harsh. It was so bad. This woman flees, not knowing where she's going, not even knowing what she's going to do. She's got to get away. Now look at this. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her 
hands. This is Genesis 16, 9. Oh, wow. Look, I know you're not supposed to go, whoa, what is going on? But I'm going to say, whoa, what is going on? What is going on? So God doesn't show up to stop any of the abuse. He doesn't show up to to set Hagar free. She's now told to go back and submit to this unfair, to these horrible people. I mean, there's no way to get around it. These people are horrible, all right? These, pe- these people, I mean, if this was in the news, you'd be like, what kind of demented, twisted nonsense is that? In fact, we would be the first to say, they're probably not saved. Clearly, and in fact, there people would be on social media. Saved people can never do a thing like this. Saved people would never do anything like this. Well, obviously, Abram's has been following God, and clearly people who follow God can do really messed up things because of our depra- uh, depravity. Yeah, all right, someone just said, someone listening just said they don't like it either. I don't like it either. I don't like it either. And we've got to be very careful with this because a lot of people, um, and there's a big article right now um, that's been out talking about a, a, a certain person who's a part of a, a very well-known church who I guess taught biblical counseling Basically, supposedly there's videos of it. I haven't watched the videos. That's why I'm not going to name the church or the person. But basically, counseling women who've been abused, you go back to your husband. You you go back and submit to that. And um and I don't I I would hope they don't use this passage. I will just say this. I don't like it, but it's it's a divine encounter, and God is is supernaturally revealing what she should do. I will argue that what we have today is we don't have God supernaturally revealing what we should do because we believe God only speaks to us in scripture. So I would say that I, I don't think from a scriptural standpoint I would I, that I would be required to nor should I ever tell a woman who's been abused or raped, go back to the one abusing you. Okay, I don't think that would ever could – I don't think that should ever be the counsel. It would always be separate, protect protect the woman, protect you from the abuse, all right? Clearly, that should be the first step. And of course, legally, then we have to report the abuse. If we are aware of it, we have to do that, all right? So I, I mean, that's just, but this happens so many times in the Bible where, where God will show up and you're like, well, if you're showing up here, why didn't you show up? Why didn't you show up to stop everything that went wrong? Oh, like, it's like some, sometimes it's just when God shows up, it's clearly his time, not our time. Because I'm like, look, if you're going to show up now, why didn't you show up? And I don't know, before they started using and abusing Hagar, maybe that would have been a good time to show up. But again, that, that's, I'm just, I'm, look, I'm just going to be honest. It's, it's okay to struggle with a text. Verse 10, and the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, behold, thou art with child and shall bear a son and shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point too. So, but, but God... God has heard her affliction. He has seen the affliction, and now he's he's going to bless her. He's gonna he's gonna bless her. He he's like uh, uh in fact uh, 
uh, thou art with child, uh, um, you're, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. God had heard the affliction. He had seen the affliction. He doesn't show up to stop the affliction. I, that's one of those absolute, like, I, look, there's no way. Look, you, you can see why preachers don't want to deal with these texts. I, I can see why nobody wants to deal with this text. You just want to say, see, they should have just trusted God, right? And you know what's really weird? It's almost, I think in many cases, we, that even through all of this messed up stuff, I think in many sermons, Abram and Sarah still kind of come out the hero. You know, well, they're, they just like, they're, they're relatable, right? You know what? We all find ourselves in difficult situations and we don't trust God. I mean, they're a lot like us, right? But we all know how it's all going to turn out because Abraham's going to turn it all around and he's going to really trust God. It's almost like they, they just kind of become like, oh man, the, the heroes of the story had a little bump in the road here. The, the heroes in the story just kind of stumbled a little bit. We can all relate, but let's keep cheering because you know the heroes of the story are going to be victorious in the end. This is some messed up stuff. So, Hagar is used, she's abused, she flees. God shows up and says, hey, I saw what happened. I, I, I heard your affliction. Now, here's what I want. I want you to go back. But here, I got some good news for you. You're going to have a child. Okay? And I'm going to, and in fact, let me read it directly. Um, and I'm going to multiply thy seed exceedingly. So I've heard your affliction. Now, I, I, I have, I mean, Look, anyone who's ever suffered any kind of abuse, I mean, it's a question we would all, I'm not going to go through my whole childhood and everything that happened to me. I'm not going to go through it, but I can tell you this. Why didn't God show up? Why didn't God show up? I worked in the medical world 22 years, plenty of times at night. I'd be called down to the ER because we, uh, uh, because we need to, to get the rape kit and perform uh, do a rape kit on a woman who's been sexually assaulted or sexually abused. I remember one night a woman came in who'd been beaten horribly by her husband. I mean, beaten horribly. Um, we brought her in and we put her uh, upstairs and tried to, uh, you know, get her medical care and to try to help her and try to, you know, counseling and everything else. And, uh, but she'd come in, we'd taken her upstairs to get her admitted. I'd, I'd make, I had to go through all the process. I was there in the ER, then I had to admit her, take her upstairs. So I was involved in the process a little bit. And that we put her in a place where there was a, a, a good, a door that was, that was locked. And the only way it could be unlocked was someone from the inside that would have to buzz you in, right? It was a big, heavy door. And so we thought she was safe there. Now it's about one or two in the morning, or maybe, maybe, maybe about 2.30 in the morning. And uh, all of a sudden I get a call. Uh, from up, the, up onto the floor where she's admitted, and they're they're yelling and screaming, saying, "Hey, you got to get up here. We got to we we need security. We you got to get the security forces in. We got to do something immediately because the the husband is here and he's trying to break the door down, right? So we go up there and he's literally trying to tear. I mean, he's pounding on the door, trying to find some way to get it open because he's trying to get to her. And so we try to restrain the guy. He starts throwing us all over the place. And it takes like, I don't know, it feels like it takes five people to try to get, get him down. People, I mean, it takes, it takes a lot to try to get him ultimately restrained. And she stays in the hospital. And I was there the day she was released and we, she had received death threats. So this is what we did, that he was going to possibly show up to kill her, right? When she got out of the hospital. And I remember that 
we, it was me and a couple of, it was nurses and maybe a couple of doctors. We basically, she stood in the middle of us. We made a circle around her and we literally walked her to her car saying, if, if, if the person comes to try to kill her, they're going to have to kill us because we're going to try to protect her. Right. So I know how horrible violence can be in these situations. I've seen it in, 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 in working in the medical world. I've seen these horrible things and you've seen it and you may have even experienced it. So it's hard to read this story because one, where is God? Well, God doesn't always show up when we think he should show up the way we should think he should show up. If you haven't figured that out as a Christian, you're out of luck because he doesn't just automatically show up every day in some supernatural way to stop the abuse or stop anything. Here, he shows up in a supernatural way. You're kind of like, why didn't you show up earlier? But in this particular case, he doesn't show up. And then she's told to go back, which is just absolutely astounding in every way possible that, that that would even be said. But here, someone has just pointed out in the chat, what's even more astounding to me is this, all right? This is so crazy, all right? All right, and uh, God goes on to say in verse 12, or the angel, uh, the angel of the Lord goes on to say, um, and he will be a wild man, speaking of the child, his hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him, and he should dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And then look at verse 13, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, thou God seest me. For she said, I have, I have also, for have I also here looked after him that seeth me. Now, this is interesting. I could be wrong, but I think, and someone can check this. If you go from Genesis 1 to 16, I believe, I could be wrong, but I think that up to this chapter, every time I, God's name is revealed, it's God revealing his name. And she now, she speaks, really declares the name of God, and she declares him as the God who sees. In fact, she says it again, uh, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, thou God seest me, or the God that seest me. I'm going to look at, uh, I'm going to look this up in a number of translations. I'm going to go to Genesis 16. I'm going to go to uh, verse 13. Let me just do it this way. I'm going to, I'm going to pull this up and pull up every English translation because I think this is just, and, and, and the reason I'm emphasizing this is important, all right, because I think this is very important, all right? So Genesis 16, 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. She's the one, uh, she's the one declaring the name of God. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. So in a sense, she's had an encounter with God. She now sees the one who has seen her. New Living Translation. Therefore, Hagar used another name to refer to the Lord who had spoken to her. She said, you are the God who sees me. She also said, have I truly seen the one who sees me? ESV. Uh, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. Now, maybe maybe somewhere else someone has spoken, like, here's the name of God. But I think God has revealed his name up to this point. But here, she declares the name of God. Maybe it's not the first time. I'm thinking it could be. But it, it's, whatever the case is, it's still amazing. The woman who's been used and abused demonstrates, okay, 
God has seen me and I have seen the one who sees me. She demonstrates trust in God. She demonstrates obedience to God. She demonstrates faith to God. The heroes here are not Abram and Sarai. They're not the heroes of this story. They're not just people who didn't trust God. Hagar, the Egyptian slave, demonstrates I mean, look, well, look what she does. Uh, and then, uh, you see, uh, wherefore the well, and it names the name of the well, and Hagar bare Abram a son, and Abram called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. She goes back. She goes back. They don't obey God. Hagar obeys God. But what's crazy is, her son, Ishmael, that's not who the covenant's going to go through. It's going to go through Isaac. So in spite of Abram's and Sarai's utter horrible actions here, God still, he doesn't break, he doesn't throw out his covenant with Abram. He doesn't throw out his promise. He keeps his promise. He keeps his covenant irregardless of Abram and Sarai's horrible, horrible, horrible action. Now, on one hand, that's good news, right? That's good news for us because no matter what we do, God stays faithful to his promises. But it's just so horrible to read. Let me go back and and finish this article that I was reading from because there's just so much here. All right, here we go. Um. Okay, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go back and read some of the things I read because I want it all to flow together. But when I look at this story again, it's evident that the sin, that the sin is most truly against Hagar. Abram, or they, they keep saying Abraham, but Abram rapes her, an enslaved, an enslaved woman with no choice or control over her own body, and forces her to bear him the son he believes uh, he has coming to him. It doesn't matter if this was an accepted practice in the culture around him. Rape isn't something that becomes less or more wrong from one place in time to another. In a way, the two sins are related. If Abraham had, if Abram had trusted God, then he wouldn't have sexually victimized an innocent woman for his own gain. Ultimately, God doesn't allow him to benefit from his sin, instead making him wait more and more years for Isaac to arrive. God promises to Abram will, uh, to Abram will not be carried out through rape and sexual slavery. Every time Abram raped, raped Hagar, now they read it as that it continued on and on and on and, and we, we could have that discussion. Clearly, though, yeah, I mean, the whole situation is messed up. But every time it happened, God saw. Every time Sarah Sarai mistreated Hagar out of jealousy, forcing her to do manual labor and beating her, and even according to some rabbinical teachers' teachings, causing her to miscarry her first child before eventually becoming pregnant with Ishmael, God saw that too. When Hagar fled into the wilderness out of desperation, God saw her and gave her water and hope for the future, a future that wouldn't belong to Abraham's family, but to her own. As Rachel, uh, as Rachel uh, Evans reminds us in a creative retelling of the story, and this is how someone by the name of Rachel Evans kind of tells the story, and I quote, just one person and all your sacred scripture dared to name God. And it wasn't a priest, a prophet, warrior, or a king. It was Hagar, foreigner, woman, slave. It's a good point. All of the other names we use for God from uh, we use for God from directly from God, but not this one. 
Hagar names God Elroy, the God who sees, for I have seen the one who sees, who sees me. All right. Now, I'm not going to go, they, they go through another story of sexual violence. I'm not going to go there. Now, I don't, again, I'd have to go through, is it God from Genesis 1 to Genesis 16 who reveals his name and this is the one place where the woman names God? I, 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 I think it's a very, very interesting. In fact, I'm going to look up something here. I'm going to look up. I'm going to look up in the Blue Letter Bible app, if I can find it here really quick. Give me one second. I have way too many apps on my iPad. I always, there it is. Always don't see it. Right, let's go to Genesis. Go to Old Testament, Genesis. I'm going to go to verse 16. I'm going to go to Genesis 16. All right, and I'm going to go where she names Thou God seest me. I'm going to go to click on verse 13. Uh, see here. Okay, God would be L. Okay, that would make sense. And that seest me would be this word. 7200. Ra'ah. Ra'ah. El Ra'ah, I think is how it would be. El, El Ra'ah. They have it like L uh, R O I, I think. El Ra'ah, I think is how we, maybe we, uh, Ra'ah. So I think maybe that's how, I uh, see how it would be trans, how would it be written out? They have the transliteration is R A A, Ra'ah. Okay. So either way, El Ra'ah, the, the God who sees. She names him that. She, it's just amazing. She comes to understand that God has seen and she doesn't at all raise the question. I mean, the question I would have been raised, I would have said, wait a minute, you've seen the whole time? Why didn't you do anything? Right? And now you want me to go back? Well, if you saw, why do you want me to go back? It's just, it's absolutely, I mean, and then the story just ends. And then we come to chapter 17. And when Abram was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram. We, we jump in time. We jump in time. I don't know uh, how, how what the time gap is between there. See, does it say how old Abram was in chapter 16? I don't think it gives his uh, age at that point in time. But there was a jump in time. Now, the, the story just leaves me absolutely perplexed. But here's, I think, some lessons we can take away again. I want to focus, this is so important, I want to focus on the the whole part of sexual violence, right? Here's what we know. There's no question. Polygamy and adultery, that's not even debatable. So it's not just they didn't trust God. He commits polygamy and adultery. Let's make it, it's sexual sin, right? Sexual sin, you know, supposed to be the end of everything. But for Abram, it's not the end of everything, right? I mean, he commits uh, all of these sins and... In fact, in some ways, is Abram even really punished? Does he even really get confronted? Hagar receives some comfort. Do they really receive any rebuke or condemnation? I mean, I mean, I mean, it's a question. But sometimes in the Old Testament, that's how the text reads. They just tell you what happened. They don't give you all the moral judgments in regard to it. But clearly, polygamy and adultery, that, those are not even questionable. 
right? There's not even questionable here. Now, unless you want to say, well, adultery is not condemned yet. I mean, you could go there, but then you can't condemn anything else that's not condemned. I mean, it depends on how you want to handle Genesis. But polygamy and adultery clearly occur. And then here's, there's a high probability. I think it's at least worth considering rape occurred here. Now, here's what we need to learn from it. This is very important. Very important. When we start, this is, I think this is just a very practical lesson here. Not only does it apply to sexual violence, it applies to anything. The minute we deviate from listening to God's word, when we deviate from it, because they don't, they stop listening to God's word. They don't trust in God. They, 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 they ignore God and they're going to take matters into their own hands. Whenever we deviate from God's word, we stop listening to it. Where we end up, who knows? We can end up in some really bad places. They stop listening to God. Next thing you know, polygamy, adultery, rape. Clearly the woman is abused. She's abused. That Like you take a human being, you use it for your own purpose. You think you're trying to do God's purpose possibly. And the, wo- and the woman you use is then abused all because they deviated from God's word. They end up here because they deviated from God's word. They stop listening to it. They stop trusting it. So it's a good reminder that am I trusting God's word at any Am I following God's word? When I deviate from it, who knows what's coming next? Who knows what's coming next, right? That, that's, that's, there's a big lesson there. Number two, this is so important. Once again, right? Okay. Um, okay. Hang on. Someone just said, hang on, let me look here. Genesis 16. I think I read it and didn't even catch on to it. So let me go. I'm going to look at something here. Give me a second. I'm going to pull up uh, every translation that I have here because I want to make sure that we, I don't say anything incorrect here. So if we go to Genesis 16, 16, okay, Genesis 16, 16, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. New Living, uh, Abram was 86 years. Uh, ESV, Abram was 86 years when Ishmael was born. So Ishmael was born when he was 86. And then we go to chapter 17, verse 1, and now he's 99 years old. So we go from 86 to 99. So there is a gap of time between the end of 16 and 17, 1. There, there's a gap of time, 86 to 99. All right, there, there you go. So there is a, there is a gap of time. And it just jumps. And you're kind of like, well, what, what happened? To, you're kind of like, well, so what happened to Hagar? What, what, what happened to her? Well, like, what? That's kind of that's messed up. Well, what, what, what happened here? Right? So, but go back to, so clearly adultery and polygamy hap- happens. Clearly we can, we can say these three things, polygamy, adultery, and abuse, abuse of Hagar all happens. There's no question about those three things happens. Rape is a very distinct possibility. And this reminds us and is a warning for me that when I'm devi- when God gives me his word and says, this is the way things need to be. And this is what's going to happen. I trust that if I deviate, start trying to come up with my own plans and ideas, who knows where I will end up? Who knows what I will do? Because we have the same depravity in us that was in Sarai and in Abram. All right. That, that's the first major lesson. Second major lesson. This is so very important. I don't care 
I don't care where you pick up the Bible. I don't care if it's in Genesis all the way to Revelation. You know what you're going to see time and time again? The people of God are influenced by the culture in which they live. It happens continually. It it never stops. 2,000 years of church history, we see the same thing. We live in a certain area, and that thinking, that mindset influences us. We saw that here in the United States of America. There are some Christians who lived in parts of the country that thought owning other human beings as slaves was perfectly okay. There were some Christians who lived in parts of the country that even when those people were freed as slaves, they denied them basic rights. They treated them as second-class citizens, wouldn't let them vote, wouldn't use the same water fountain, wouldn't use the same door, uh, had to sit somewhere else. They, they defended these horrible practices. Why? Because they were influenced by the culture, not by their theology. We just talked about this in the last live broadcast. Does your theology actually influence your practice? What is influencing you more, your theology or your culture? So because everyone will say, well, you know what? Well, in the Bible, the culture at that time did A, B, C, D, E. Yes, but the people of God should not have been getting their marching orders and their ideas from the culture. They should have been getting it from God. Abram is having, you know, he's getting divine revelation from God. He, he should have been listening to God, but he did not. He ultimately followed the practice of the culture, and that's where they end up with a slave, that end up using the slave. Almost everything they do is, is, is what the culture would have done, but the culture shouldn't determine it. I cannot stress that enough. So a very important lesson. The first lesson is the danger of when we stop listening to God. Second, when we here, and this is very important. When we stop listening to God, we usually start listening to culture. So I think point number one, the danger of not listening to God. And point number two is the result of not listening to God. We start listening to culture. We start following culture. We get our philosophy from culture. That's the way we think. And it happens all the time. You'll hear Christian, like you'll get Christians say in Texas who think certain ways about everything from guns to immigration, very different than maybe a Christian who lives in Seattle. Well, no, we should be getting, both of us should be thinking through things biblically, not based off the culture which we grow up in. That, that's not the way, that's not the way it's supposed to work. Okay, third, this is very important. And I don't even know how to put this one. When we suffer, when we suffer, no matter what kind of abuse it is, no matter how horrible it is, what we, we can't, when we may never understand, we, in fact, you can just count on it. You're never going to be given an, an uh, you're never going to be given a reason for why you suffered. It's ne- you know, God's never going to come down and tell you, here's the re- reason you suffered. It, you're never going to be given that reason. Stop looking for it. It's not, you're not going to be given it. Okay. Especially now, unless you believe God is talking to you and then that gets into a whole other theological problem, but I believe you're not. I think here's what's going to happen. Here's what you can do. When you are suffering, no matter what you suffer, all you can do, I mean, I guess you can abandon God, but you're still, you still suffered. That's not going to make the suffering go away. All I can say is when I have suffered, all I can do is pick up the Bible and look through his word and figure out what I'm supposed to do. Now, I am in no way saying that God's word tells you that if you've been abused to go back to your abuser. I'm I'm not saying that in any way, shape or form. All right. That I think there's major problems with that. All right. 
Now, you have a right to be protected. You have a right to be protected. Okay? Uh, um, so, uh, ultimately, sin and the fall, right? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm assuming you're saying that this is ultimately the result of the fall. I, I think I think that's what the, the, the person is saying. Um, let me do something really quick. Let me open up the Spreaker app. And I apologize if we're going a little long here, but I'm trying to wrap all of this up as much as I can because this is such a heavy topic. It's a heavy, 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 heavy. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I think, I, I, I think, oh, for suffering. Yes. Uh, yeah. The, the re- I mean, ultimately the reason we suffer is because of the, of the fall and because of sin. I mean, that is very true. So the reason I suffer I, that's a very, that's a good point. That they're they're being more theologically uh, insightful than I am. Okay, so um, yeah, it's true. When you suffer, the ultimate reason is sin. I'm saying you're not going to be given a specific reason, and you're not going to be given a specific reason why God didn't intervene. Hagar suffers, right? Hagar suffers, and because she suffers, we're not given the reason why God didn't show up. Now, yes, she could understand the reason she's suffering is because of sin and the fall. All right, so let's go through the lessons here. Number one, it's so very, I just, I cannot, I just want to make sure we get these points down as much as we can, all right? So the first thing we have to understand here is that when we deviate from God's word, when we stop listening to God, we ultimately find ourselves in all kinds of trouble, right? Number two is what happens when we don't listen to God, we ultimately are influenced by the culture, so number one, we, we stop listening to God. Number two, we end up listening to culture. Number three, and I, I guess the only way I can say this is when we suffer, follow God's word. Like Hagar suffers, but she still is like, God sees. She understands. God sees, and I've seen the one who has seen me. Like, And then she obeys. Like the, all we can do in suffering is obey God. Now, I'm not saying, let me make it very clear, that to obey God means you go back and submit yourself to suffering. This was specific words given to Hagar in a specific historical situation, all right? I, I would never say that, that that should be applied to anyone else. I cannot say that in any way, shape, or form. I know there's some churches that teach that, that if a woman is being beaten, she needs to go back and submit to that abuse. I mean, that, that's been the whole, one of the big parts of the whole controversy that we've talked about in relation to a very famous church and a very famous pastor where the woman ends up being excommunicated who was ab- abused and her children were sexually abused and the husband went to prison and the woman is still excommunicated. The church is yet to really, to uplift, to lift her excommunication because it's almost the feeling is, well, she shouldn't have went to the, uh, the, 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 the court she shouldn't have got a protective order. She shouldn't have got. She shouldn't have done. She shouldn't have separated from her husband. She should have went back to it, which is just crazy. Um, that that's not the way it works. I'm saying that what we learn from Hagar is that we can suffer, but we obey God. In the midst of that suffering, we obey God. It doesn't always make sense. Now, but again, I'm not saying that that means go back and suffer. I'm not saying go do that. I'm saying obey God. And I don't think God would immediately say, go back and suffer, go back and suffer, go back and suffer. You have legal rights. You're a human being. It's usually men who say that to about women have to go back. It's, it's kind of funny that in some cases, men, uh, men, some churches 
will tell a woman who's being abused, well, you need to be godly. You need to go back and submit to your uh, husband and you suffer for Jesus. And then as soon as COVID restrictions came down, those same men were like, we're not going to follow those COVID restrictions. We're not going to follow the government. Romans 13 doesn't apply here. Well, wait a minute. If a, if a woman who suffers abuse from a husband, you tell her to go back and suffer, why didn't you just shut up and suffer the supposedly unjust rules that were being handed down? No, no. Oh, oh yeah, you, you didn't want to follow. It's amazing how we can tell other people to go suffer while we then want to rebel against rules that we don't like. It's, that's just ridiculous. Yeah, I don't think the Bible would anyway tell you a woman has to go suffer. I think, you, I think our, our job would be to help the woman protect the woman. That's what would be the case. The woman has every right to be protected, right? Now, whether you want to, divorce is a whole separate issue. If you want to get into that discussion, the real issue is you can separate and you can protect and you can do everything you can to protect yourself and your children. No one should have to suffer like that under any circumstances because you're a person created in the image of God and you have a, a right not to suffer that way. This this all this all, well, this is a horrible text. This text is so, just, it just ends. I I I hate the way it ends. It's just it's over. It's just okay. She she's like okay. I I've, I've seen the God who sees. I I know God now is the God who sees. It's so wonderful to know that you saw me in my affliction. Thank you for the blessings you've given me. Wonderful, great. And she goes back. Now, we do not have any record, I think, of any more abuse, but does, does she continue to be used sexually? I mean, it just raises a million questions. I just think Abram's sin is far worse than we make it out to be. <laughs> we make it out, well, you know, he, he, had, he didn't have as much faith at this point, but it was growing. And we just try to make it out like, you know, He's a great guy. Yeah, this, he, no, I think we. I think this is what we find out. God's people can do really horrible, 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 horrible things, and God remains faithful to those people, even when we when we proved ourselves to be unfaithful. All right, that should spark a lot of conversation and discussion. There you have it. All right, you can email me newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. All right, everyone have a great evening. I may come back later tonight. I may just, I may be done. I'm, my voice is uh, wearing out today. It, it needs a little bit of rest. But uh, I think, well, that, that's two things today. So maybe that'll be the end. If for some reason I, I want to come back later, I will. But I think I may stop there for today. So thank you very much for listening. Thank you uh, to the person participating um, for, for listening and for participating and offer some good insight there um, and uh, asking some good questions. All right. Okay, and if anybody wants to discuss it in the Discord channel, feel free to do so. All right, everyone have a great evening. God bless.